This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 437, Interview with Scott Simon about his latest project, Swing Time for Hitler. From Goebbels Jazzman to Tokyo Rose to AI, the eternal allure of propaganda. Scott Simon, an Emmy and Peabody award-winning writer and broadcaster, the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday, comes on to discuss his latest effort, how Joseph Goebbels tried to use jazz music and altered lyrics to hit songs to undermine the Allies' morale. And though Mr. Simon is the author of several fiction and nonfiction books, for me, he will always be the voice in my head every Saturday morning. Mr. Simon, thank you very much for being with us today. Very good to be with you. Thank you. Huge fan. Very excited to have you here. I do have to say, um, after listening to the advanced copy, it, w- it was a beautiful blend of narration and music. You bring it all together. That really made it effective. But I have to admit... I've been reading books about World War II since I was 12 years old. Yes, that makes me a geek or a nerd, I'm not sure, but I didn't know the story. Uh, How did you hear about the story? How did this project uh, come about for you? You know, uh, I I think the story of Charlie and his orchestra has been, uh, you know, hiding in plain sight uh, (laughs) for years. Right. Um, I was was doing some research into Serbian state radio propaganda broadcasts for my Bosnian novel, uh, mm-hmm. Pretty Birds. And I was at the Imperial War Museum and uh, I, I came across this CD which had uh, downloaded um, the songs uh, that British intelligence had recorded of this uh, jazz group called Charlie and His Orchestra. And I, I was absolutely riveted and fascinated by them. And I'd never heard of, of anything like this before. As I don't have to tell you, you know, they never said, 
from Berlin, <laughs> the Nazi point of view. <laughs> the whole idea was to sound like an American or British uh, variety show. Right. Uh, with jazz and pop. And of course, the musicians were very, very good. They had some very talented jazz musicians uh, in Berlin um, mm -hmm. before the Nazis banned jazz and swing music. And uh, it was tuneful. I mean, I couldn't I, I, I couldn't help myself. I would listen to the songs over and over because the lyrics were appalling and yet fascinating. <laughs> and I would find myself like, you know, you know, bouncing my knee. And, yes. And just on. this past summer, my wife and I were walking our dog. My wife is French. We were along Normandy Beach, mm -hmm. Normandy Beach of all places. And we're walking our dog, Daisy, and I'm singing German submarine. <laughs> I, my wife said, darling, are you, are you thinking what I'm singing what I think you're thinking? So I just found it absolutely fascinating. And over the years, I've been looking for uh, a way to tell the story, uh, you know, uh, in bits and pieces. And then right. finally, they, thanks to the people at Scribd, the, uh, you know, the whole medium of the audio book has been invented. And uh, yes. I'm able to tell the story. That's that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I after I listened to the uh, the advanced copy you sent me, I'm sitting here singing, humming certain phrases that shouldn't be sung. And, Absolutely, and, yeah. <laughs> and not trying to outdo you, but my wife is German. She's like, uh, "That's in poor taste." I'm like, "I didn't <laughs> write it uh, anyway." So, so I guess what this all leads to is World War II is known for being the war of total war. You know, there, there's yeah. nothing sacred. There's nothing safe. There are no boundaries, which I guess now includes jazz music. So if you could introduce us to Charlie and his orchestra and kind of what the goals were of uh, Minister yeah. of Propaganda Goebbels were, I think that would be a good setup for the rest of the story. Well, um, jazz and swing music had been banned as degenerate culture uh, almost as soon as the Nazis took over. Right which to a degree didn't make it any less popular among many Germans. Mm. But um, in any event, it was banned. But um, I think even Dr. Goebbels understood that if you just played hour after hour of, um, you know, William Joyce and other right. propagandists, that it, it wouldn't exactly light a flame under people. So there was this jazz orchestra, which became known as Charlie and his orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy named Lutz Templin was the conductor of the orchestra. Uh, he 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 was with an orchestra that had essentially overthrown their leader, who was Jewish. Right. For career opportunities, and they they actually played at the 1936 Olympics uh, in Munich. Oh wow! And, and and if Charlie had a voice, it was a guy named Kurt Schwedler, mm -hmm. uh, and he worked in the American section of the German German Foreign Ministry's uh, broadcast unit. Uh, you know, with William Joyce and Norman Bailey Stewart, uh, the, these tended to be. Um, right. uh, uh, former British and Irish citizens who, uh, you know, had, were producing shows that flattered Nazi points of view. And Kurt right. Schwedler uh, spoke English very well, and and he sang. It wasn't it was a it wasn't a great voice. Uh, I think I say in the book that he could probably play Rolf in a dinner theater <laughs> production of The Sound of Music these days. But that's but it. he gave uh, yeah. But he gave he gave voice to all these. Uh, all these terrible songs, and um, and they had very talented jazz musicians who had no other source of income at that particular point. Certainly, right. uh, had had uh, had not been playing the kind of music that they had uh, personified and loved. 
That's amazing. So, so this, if I could zoom out for a second, this book yeah. is more than just Charlie and his orchestra. This is about propaganda in general. This is about, you mentioned things that obviously happened after World War II. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed the part about Tokyo Rose. Could, could you, for, for, if there's a 14 year old out there who's listening right now and doesn't know much about Tokyo Rose, uh, could you just kind of uh, sure. fill that in for us, please? Tokyo Rose was, uh, there There actually was no Tokyo Rose. Uh, there was someone named Orphan Annie, mm -hmm. who uh, who was a succession of female voices on, on Japanese state radio right. uh, that was broadcast over the Pacific, aimed principally at, at American and, uh, and British troops, yeah. uh, mostly American. Tokyo Rose was the name that U.S. sailors and Marines uh, uh, hung on that female voice. Right. So uh, one of the voices was a woman named Iva Taguri. She'd been a college student in Japan. She was actually from Northern California. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was stuck when Pearl Harbor occurred and couldn't wow. come back to the United States right. and was looking for a job. And she, you know, obviously spoke English and began to work at the at the Ministry for Propaganda. And and then they said, well, you've got an American accent. I think you're, you know, you're just what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And and when um, five years later, obviously, four years later, uh, U.S. troops finally entered Tokyo, right. they were looking for Tokyo Rose. <laughs> Tokyo Rose had become very popular. And right. Ivan Murray, you know, in part because she was American, rose to play the role for them. She signed autographs, she posed for pictures, uh, and it wasn't until uh, she came, tried to re-enter the United States that she was put on trial uh, for treason. Wow. Um, and and I, I knew her, which is to say really? uh, she served six years in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, she and her family, her family had been put in uh, internment camps in Northern California. She right. came, you know, they've said, we're not going to stick around Northern California, obviously. Right. They moved to Chicago, like a lot of Japanese-American families did. I went to high school on the north side of Chicago with a lot of Japanese-American kids whose mm. families had been in the camps. I was running an underground newspaper with a circulation of about 20. <laughs> and I would up and down Lincoln and Clark streets to, to try and convince shop owners to buy ads in our paper. Right. One of them was to Gurry Mercantile, which had been her parents' store. And mm -hmm. Iva was running it. And she would buy ads in our newspaper. That's and uh, it, it wasn't until I, my physics partner, Paul Hashimoto, I had a copy of the newspaper and we were beginning class one day and he saw the ad and he said, you know who that is, man, <laughs> don't you? That's Tokyo Rose. And in fact, I didn't know. But um, in any event, I, you know, I, I learned more about the story then. What my wife finds most incredible right. is here I was ostensibly a fearless student journalist. And I, I never asked her about being Tokyo Rose. Oh. And the only way I can explain it is mm -hmm. there were a lot of Jewish families in our classes at Sen High School mm -hmm. uh, whose parents had suffered during World War II. Uh, there were lots of Japanese-American kids whose families had been in American internment camps during World War II. It, you know, it was 25 years after yeah. the war. Sure. There was uh, a feeling, well, we just don't talk about that. Exactly, uh, yeah. You know, and, I, and I, I never asked her. A few years later, I wound up working for our local congressman, Sidney Yates, a Chicago Democrat. Mm -hmm. And he was part of a group of people in Congress who were, were trying to get a uh, pardon for Tokyo Rose. 
which ultimately for Ivan Tagore, right. which ultimately she received. And so when, when I uh, completely, uh, without justification, boasted about my close relationship with <laughs> Ivan Tagore, the congressman uh, appointed me his special representative. Uh, and I would go to community meetings typically held in you know north side churches or Buddhist temples uh, right. for her support. And she had no memory of me when I was a young, long-haired student. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but even then, I didn't talk to her about her days as uh, as Tokyo Rose. I just right. talked to her about what could be done now. And I, you know, I bought stuff at her gift store um, for Good many for years. That's what my friends could rely on, you know. You were supporting some, yeah, because every, you know, once the war ends, everybody has got to make a living, everybody's got to get by, yeah. everybody does what they can. Now, if, if I could ask a follow-up question, because a lot of Western movies about the war uh, that come out, they have a very, it's like, it's like the sailors and the, and whoever heard yeah. her, you know, they hated her, turned that radio off or whatever, but... You questioned a Marine, Bill Veek. I'm not sure if I'm saying Bill, that right. Bill Veck. Bill Veck Bill was Bill yeah. Veck years later. I mean, he lost a leg when he was serving in the Pacific. Years wow. later, he, he winds up um, owning the Cleveland Indians when they won the <laughs> um, World Series and right. the Chicago White Sox when they were in the World Series. Wow. And, um, you know, I knew about Bill's history in the Pacific. You know, Tokyo Rose, orphan, little orphan, orphan Annie, played mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. And and yes, she would announce, but you know, she 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 was trying to impress American sailors. She was trying to get along with them, so she would not slur them in any right. ways. She would talk about obviously Japanese naval victories and Japanese uh, land actions, mm -hmm. which were victorious, but she wouldn't do it in a way that sneered at at U.S. sailors and soldiers. Uh -huh. And I remember Bill said to me, we never thought of Tokyo Rose as our enemy. On the contrary, we thought she was the most beautiful part of Japan. Uh -huh. You know, and, and that's why when U.S. troops entered Tokyo, they said, we got to meet Tokyo Rose. We got to meet Tokyo Rose. <laughs> I got my fan book right here. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if, if I could, so so there's that example of uh, a, a voice on a radio, some music, not not coming at the listeners, but, you know, whatever. Um, but then there's the German side, the, the Nazi side. Now, the Nazis, and you, you kind of touched on this a second ago, the Nazis knew, they understood the power of the radio. That's how Hitler, you know, with sure. his speeches. And, but they also understood art, and yet they feared that. And uh, you touched this in your book. Uh, the Germans certainly helped themselves to a lot of art, of yeah. a lot of different kinds. So I'm, I'm guessing that went into... Maybe a lot of private collections. Yeah, for for Nazi for Nazi party leaders themselves. You know, Heinrich Himmler was notably probably the most uh, you know the most prolific art collector in the world at that right. at that particular point. Uh, it's interesting, with exceptions, they didn't destroy it. Um, you know, they they put a lot of it on display when they first took over. They had a they had mm -hmm. a display of of what they call degenerate art. That was uh, that was put on in Munich and Berlin that to huge crowds. They'd never right. had they'd never had crowds like that show up before. Wow. And um, you know, it, it, it's it's funny, and I think this was at the heart of it. The mm -hmm. uh, the Nazis reviled, for example, abstract art, jazz, swing, improv. Uh, all of that is somehow undercutting uh, morale, undercutting morality. Uh, degenerate art, they called it. And yet, right. at the same time, um, 
there was a part of darker Goebbels that knew that you you know you uh, you, you can't put Hitler's speeches on the air twenty four seven and <laughs> right. and win people overseas, right. uh, or for that matter, William Joyce, who was Lord Haw Haw, uh, Norman Bailey Stewart, some of the other propaganda broadcasters, they were there to kind of you know tickle the ivories of of, of Nazi leaders. But uh, what they tried to do with Charlie and his orchestra was something, you know, altogether different. They never said we're coming from Berlin. They never said we're Nazis. Uh, They knew that there was isolationist sentiment and accommodationist sentiment, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. And that's what they tried to trick, you know, tickle with their songs. Uh, you know, that's that's what they 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 would you know they would refer to this hopeless war as Churchill's war. Mm-hmm. Churchill was this uh, drunkard, this fat friend of the Jews. You know, there were British people saying you know making jokes about Churchill's drinking. Right. Um, and for that matter, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. God forbid, in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, so they felt that the, that they could maybe burrow under the saddle and uh, and and start some kind of uh, insurrectionist feelings. Uh, by right. broadcasting this music, yeah, you can't you can't exactly take out the allies directly, but if you could erode the base, if you could make the people yeah. question that kind, so so on that on paper, it's a pretty good, brilliant, subtle plan if it works. Um, but 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 you you certainly they certainly tried everything they could. Uh, we're going to get back to the music in just a second. But you just mentioned William Joyce, and again, I should have been more read up on him, but I did not realize. Uh, to the degree that he did, the part that he played, um, if you can fill us in on William Joyce a little bit and what he did with the Nazis. William Joyce was actually born uh, in New York to an mm-hmm. Irish family, uh, came back, uh, obviously, to uh, to Ireland. He became mm-hmm. a supporter of what we would now identify. Well, he became a, a supporter of Irish nationalist causes, anti-colonial, right. anti-British policies, and then, and then I shouldn't say drifted. It was quite a conscious movement into uh, into far right uh, anti-Semitic policies mm-hmm. and, and uh, support of that. Um, he had a dueling scar, by the way, that he was very oh, wow. proud of, which he which he uh, would suggest to people came from a violent confrontation with some kind of violent Jew. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be a violent confrontation with with a, a lover's husband. But in mm-hmm. any event, that, that, you yeah. know that that was that was his level of uh, uh, reliability. Right. Uh, uh, in any event, uh, William Joyce uh, had washed up in Berlin at that point and, and knew that he could flatter. The Germans and and he became the voice. It would be Germany calling, Germany mm. calling, and the Germans were quite uh, glad to see that he was hung with the nickname Lord Haw Haw, <laughs> and and so he would write these absolutely you know truculent, virulent um, tirades that he would go into about yeah. how hopeless the war effort was in Britain at that particular point. And mm-hmm. uh, being in the culture ministry with a K, he uh, he uh, reportedly wrote some of the lyrics for the songs in, in Charlie and his orchestra, where, of course, they would take well-known jazz hits and just write these utterly reprehensible lyrics. Uh, one of my favorite sections, I must say, in the audiobook, favorite? Can I say favorite? All right. <laughs> Is is William Joyce's last broadcast? Right, uh, because they were on the run. They had to leave Berlin. Um, uh, Allied troops were coming. Russian troops, in that particular case, they were on the run. Right, uh, they were in the south of Germany. Uh, so their last broadcast, they were flagrantly drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in any event, he—I mean, you—you—you you, you hear it 
you hear it in his voice, and you know he, he descends into German at that particular point to say mm -hmm. Heil Hitler and, and Deutschland über alles. Right. And then he and some other people from the outfit figure they'll just disappear into the morass of refugees. Mm -hmm. And they run into some British troops uh, uh -huh. that include some British troops who had been born in Germany. So they were in the forefront and they were speaking German to civilians. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that they were speaking German, one of the British soldiers recognized William <laughs> Joyce's voice. As oh. I say in the book, right. maybe there are some drawbacks to having a well-known voice. <laughs> and, you know, uh, yes. God bless William Joyce was put on, put on trial and, and ultimately hung for treason. Right. Um, that's um, I feel weird now because I want to mention my favorite part of the book. You mentioned something like where the you know, like you just said, the Germans were trying to do a little tongue in cheek. This is Churchill's war, the old fat guy or whatever, trying to insult the British. Yeah, is one of the biggest mistakes you can make because oh. they can insult themselves better than exactly. anybody. <laughs> exactly. Nobody makes fun of nobody makes fun of British people more than the British. And they, you know. Why they thought with a, you know, this was kind of a strategy was, I mean, what? you know, Monty yeah. Python, the silly walks, and, you know, why yeah. they thought this was a strategy. Yeah. So there were all these, uh, you know, all these jokes about Churchill, yeah. uh, all these jokes. I, I mean, one of the songs, you know, they, the refrain is the jerk. They, they said, here is uh, what is here is uh, Prime Minister Churchill's latest tearjerker. The Germans are driving me crazy. I thought I had brains, but they shattered my planes, you know. And, and then, he, of course, he gets to Jews, you know. Uh, the Jews are the friends, what is it, who are near me to cheer me, believe me, they do desert me and laugh at me too. But the Germans are driving me, you know, and yeah. I can imagine, you know, I, I, undoubtedly, if there were some British people who agreed with that, they they agreed with that. But on right. the other hand, I didn't mean they didn't support the war effort. You know? Exactly. And if I remember correctly, I think Churchill went through not one, but two votes of no confidence during the war. So when it comes to insulting Churchill, the British have got, got it covered. Absolutely. They, they don't and, and by the way, Churchill, stuff. according to reports, loved the song. <laughs> I mean, he would he would get transcripts of, of the songs. And, you know, kind of sing them the way I just did to uh, members of his war cabinet. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's singing a little ditty while you're taking a shower or whatever. I mean, with Churchill's ego, I can imagine him enjoying that very much. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, but again, and, and I want to zoom out a little bit. So the premise is you take recognizable music, you take jazz, but then you tweak you tweak the terms, you tweak the words, and so you're you're hoping that people are listening, half listening, subconsciously. This these words are going into their head, and maybe it's making them think, maybe it's not. But yeah. then you say in the book, you can kind of follow the war yep. by the choices that Charlie and the orchestra, the music they played. It went from you know almost like you know like you were just doing, like almost like taunting the allies yeah. to something a little darker. Could you describe that for us, please? Yeah, I mean, like, like for example, in 1940, you know, which was before what we refer to as World War II was was understood to be a world war. Right. Uh, and, and I say this married to a French woman. Uh, <laughs> 1940 was, the, the war was over for France. You know, yes. that's what they would say to each other. Well, yeah, there was a war and the Germans won. Right. Um, and then, so their their broadcasts then were in many ways directed, when they were directed towards the United States, it was to suggest that Winston Churchill and the British 
British imperialists were trying to snooker the U.S. into supporting them in this war effort, Lend-Lease and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's what most of their songs are. I mean, that, that was the, uh, let's see, uh, um, from the old Cole Porter song, I want to be happy, but I won't be happy till I get Americans in this war too. <laughs> right. um, you know, and uh, in any event, um, and that lasted for a while. <laughs> then U.S. entered the war. There were German reverses in North Africa, so there weren't a lot of uh, a lot of songs to be done about successful German military efforts. But there mm -hmm. were about the Japanese in the Pacific, and and actually, this forgive me, one of my favorite songs. But of course, you know that that Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, you know the Continental, da 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 da, da you know. Mm -hmm. That Charlie turned that into a song. Let's see, uh, it's so terrific in the Pacific. The Japanese are doing very well. Uh, they've taken Hong Kong and Manila. The Navy and Air Force is swell, and you know, and you can imagine yeah. people people singing along to it. And and, and then by 1944, mm -hmm. uh, I think even members of the German General Staff, particularly in a sense, members of the German General Staff, right, uh, didn't see uh, a course to victory. Uh, and and that's when they that's when they entered another phrase. So that was, that was when they. And in fact, this alarmed British intelligence because they had a song that they repeated over and over. I double, what is it? I double dare you to venture a raid. I double dare you to try and invade. <laughs> they were playing this song on June 4th. Wow. And of course, British intelligence said to Eisenhower, you know, maybe they know something's up. Right. And yeah. I think Eisenhower and his staff as obviously, as we know, sagaciously concluded, no, it's a, you know, uh, it's a, it's a blind dart. They're just. Exactly. And, and then, and then after the allied invasion, they were really, they were really scattered. That's when they right. had to, uh, you know, that's when they had to get out of Berlin because the, the bombing became so big. And uh, uh, you also had, at that point, the Germans had invented magnetic tape so they could put some of the orchestrations oh, uh, on so they tape. Could, so they could yeah. just play them. Oh, but they you, can yeah. play them, but they but they, they couldn't update them. What could I tell you? And, <laughs> and they, you know, and they just they, they just overwhelmingly had bad news anyway at that particular. Sure, point. yeah. Uh, I I don't mean this as mean as it sounds, but you can listen to to music today, and the music can be very very good, and the lyrics. Not so much, but it's okay because the music's good. And yes. that just, it just made me think of back then. It's like, as long as you're tapping your toes, you're snapping your fingers. Absolutely. You know, I, 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 these are very good musicians that were playing. Right. Uh, and they were very good German musicians. And then when the draft picked up in Germany and they could no longer get exemptions, wow. um, according to Evelyn Kunica, who was a uh, singer who had sung with some of the musicians, they uh, they got some very good musicians from camps. Desperate times, desperate yeah. measures. You, you do yeah. what you got to do. Speaking of the quality of the recording, you mentioned that a second ago. Um, why were there such high or you know high quality recordings of what these people put out? Because it is degenerate. It is propaganda. Well, the Germans didn't make the recordings. These right. were these these were recordings that were made by British propaganda or British propaganda, British intelligence. Oh, right. And British intelligence was convinced that the Germans must be using the song lyrics to send messages to their agents. Oh, which turned out not to be the case. 
Right. But but even then, the British weren't recording most of them because recording technology was very cumbersome in those days. It was you right. know wax uh, cylinders and it was wire. And it was just easier to have someone listen and make a transcript and present that to people. But but they did they did make occasional copies, and that's what survives today. Those copies, uh, well, they were in Britain to begin with. Um, had they been made in Germany, I'm mm-hmm. not sure anybody could have heard them because the denazification laws, uh, not only following the war, but to a degree to this day. Um, uh, I mean, today, I'm, I have scholars have made, obviously, have made uh, cases to be able to listen to the music. Right. But certainly right after the war, you couldn't have uh, you, you, you couldn't have openly had copies of that. Yeah, uh, I think you. It was in your book. You you said that someone said these have to be codes because the lyrics are so bad. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. They can't. Yeah. I well, I mean, they. You know, they. And they were. You know, they were. God forbid. You know, firstly, I mean, it's 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 hard to write good doggerel anyway. We were not sure. talking about. You know, we're not talking about the writing staff that's, you know, for Saturday Night Live. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and also there was sometimes unfamiliarity with the language. And, uh, you know, right. it, they're kind of, for an English speaker to hear them, they can be hilarious and mind-numbing. Right. Uh, what, we, what was very interesting to me, because, of course, the Nazi regime had had confiscated all non-state authorized radios after mm-hmm. taking over in 1933. They had their own. They issued their own radio, uh, which only received you know German frequencies and German government state broadcasts. Ah. But obviously, a lot of German families hid whatever radios they had, or hid at least one radio, mm-hmm. um, so that they could listen to foreign broadcasts. Because I think even families that were committed Nazis understood if they wanted to hear the truth about the war. Right. It would have to be on the BBC, or it would have to be uh, from Radio Vatican. It had to be overseas. It couldn't be from their own German broadcasts. Right. I, I think the German people figured out a long time ago not to trust everything that was coming from the state's yeah. mouthpiece. Sp- speaking of Charlie, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? I apologize. No, not at all. Okay. No. Uh, speaking of Charlie, I, 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 when you got to the to that part of the book, you know you're not winning a war when you have to draft or tell your musicians to get the heck out of town. Clearly, things yeah, have right. not gone to plan. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, we've got. Yeah. They, you know, they had. They have a, several drawback or, or fallback plans they wanted to get to luxembourg that never quite happened right uh they, they you know they just repaired to the south and they, they and they scattered they you know they at that particular point uh also every musician was looking out for themselves exactly uh, yeah and uh you know they had to uh, uh they also had to in a, in a way prepare for the world that was coming and uh, you know i did a book with tony bennett a number of years ago mm-hmm. who who in many ways got his start in show business well, as a young boy, he was singing, but he, you know, he sang with with U.S. occupation forces in Germany after the wow. war. Right. And, uh, you know, and I was talking to him, in fact, about Charlie and his orchestra. And he had he had vaguely heard something about that. But he said uh, he said he thinks some of the musicians, uh, German musicians that were hired to play mm-hmm. with American bands in the post-war era to play jazz and swing. Right. Uh, might have played with Charlie and his orchestra, but he said, yeah, you know, but they didn't talk about it because they didn't want to end up on the end of a rope. <laughs> uh, and yeah, yeah, I understand that. 
Uh, don't ask me about what I did. Ask me about what I do now. Yes, yeah, right, right. But everybody, you know, when war comes and it's over, everybody has to pick up the pieces, and, and so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, if if I could, I want to change directions a little bit because um, because of what Gebel's uh, goal was, you know, was to sow yeah. seeds of dis- discord between the allies. But if 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 he, if he was here right now, and, and he was to ask, hey. How did my music do? Did we upset the, the the Allies' troops? Did we cause any rancor amongst the leaders? What would you be able to tell him? Uh, it didn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, or not sorry. And, sorry, in my Charlie. Case, right, yeah, right. It, it didn't. Uh, you know, it didn't work. And and I think there were some technical reasons. In that, right. uh, I mean, why would Americans listen to that music? Uh, and bop along with music on shortwave broadcasts when they could hear in the full fidelity of the time Frank Sinatra and Doris Day performing, good, good point. you know, the real actual hits and, and Duke Ellington and, um, uh, you know, so so many other great, Billy Eckstein, so many other great stars. So uh, they didn't get Americans uh, really to tune in. And secondly, you know, because America and Britain are free societies. Right. Uh, you know, they can they can listen to something and laugh at it and dismiss it or sometimes believe in it. But uh, they can also just shake it off and uh, and 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 shrug it off. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and that's and that's apparently what happened, um, you know, which is why you have, uh, you know, which which is I think I've always thought this is a great story waiting to be told uh, in in part because it, it didn't work. For whatever whatever they thought would happen, and, and look, I mean, I don't want to be there. There was even at the height of the war mm-hmm. isolationist sentiment in the United States and in the United Kingdom, and 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 yes, anti-Semitism in the United States and the United. Absolutely. But uh, I, I I think it's safe to say at one point it was no longer the majority. And uh, at one point, the American people and certainly the British people made a clear, committed, democratic decision uh, that uh, that the war had to be fought and won. Well said. Uh, Mr. Simon, I want to thank you for your time today. If I could, one last question. And sure. I'm not just asking this because of the book that you wrote. I'm asking this because of your pretty much your life's work. Uh, as you say in the book, you know, propaganda is here to stay. Sometimes it's used for good. Sometimes it's used for bad. Back then it was radio, but obviously social media has changed so yeah. much since the 1940s. So I would like to ask... Um, and I'm and I'm sure you get frustrated. A lot of people get frustrated. But can you recommend, or, or what do you think of, as far as humans trying to be a little bit more discerning when they hear something yeah. on YouTube or or they read something in a, in a junk uh, periodical? Is there any, how how do we not fall for every little single thing that we come across? You know, the only thing I can say is uh, is be skeptical. Right. Even if it's something that, you know, that plays all the notes you want and you think it's irresistibly good, be skeptical as to its origin, how it got there, what it is. Because what we're seeing and hearing today is, uh, you know, it's uh, frightening and and dangerously convincing. Uh, I mean, I I think there are probably millions of people who do think that Pope Francis wore, you know, a white puffy coat. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that picture is uh, is is very convincing. Yes. Uh, and and social media has has, 
you know, divided us in so many ways. We're not often looking to learn something so much as we're looking to be ratified in whatever opinion we already hold. So I would I would just urge people to be skeptical. And often if something is too good to be true, it's because, in fact, it is <laughs> not true. Exactly. Well said. Mr. Simon, again, thank you very much for the listeners. It's Swing Time for Hitler, From Goebbels' Jazz Man to Tokyo Rose to AI, The Eternal Allure of Propaganda. Mr. Simon, I know you're a busy man. Thank you for your time, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. My pleasure. Thanks very much. As mentioned, Swing Time for Hitler is a scribbed original. The 87-page book and the audiobook are now available. I encourage you to go to try.scribd.com slash Scott Simon, and you'll get 60 days free to read it using code SIMON60. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 437, Part 2, Operation Jubilee Continues with Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat. Last time, with the rate of Dieppe falling in on itself, it was decided to get the men out of there. Yet even that had not gone well. Only eight of the twelve ships sent made it back with some men on board. And this was not only due to German action, but rather the lack of action by British radios. In order to coordinate, you have to communicate, and that simply was not happening. Instead of radio messages, the men on the beach and the ships at sea were conversing through signal lamps and loud hailers. Had it been doable, long pieces of string connected to two tin cans might have been the way to go. As the troops needed rescuing ASAP, the first idea was to use the larger LCTs, or landing craft tank, to make another attempt, versus the LCAs, landing craft assault. But the LCTs had already proven themselves to be too big and too vulnerable. Several were lost on the original landings, so the task defaulted to the LCAs, though they were inefficient due to their smaller size. But the officer in charge of each LCA knew that death was a real possibility for them when along the beach, and the smoke that was supposed to help the Allies actually hurt the troops on the beach. Still, there was nothing for it but to get the boats underway regardless how their crews felt. As the LCAs headed out, five destroyers followed behind them to offer support. The Slazak, Brocklesby, Berkeley, Fernie, and Kaup. The good news is that there was still some smoke on the beach hiding the men and hiding the soon-to-be LCAs. But by now, the gunners on and in the cliffs knew they just had to fire into the smoke. Their chances of hitting man or ship were reasonable. Either way, the ships were spotted before they disappeared into the smoke, so the Germans increased their fire. And as much as the boat crews had steeled themselves for this moment, there is a difference between bravery and love of comrade and suicide for no apparent gain. Proving this, Commander H.V.P. McClintock, in command of the boat pool, told his superiors that, as he approached Red Beach, that is, the more eastern landing in front of Dieppe, I got as far as abreast the end of Dieppe breakwater when a bombing and cannon attack developed, and I rather think that we were also under fire from the shore, but I am not sure. At any rate, I retired very hurriedly to seaward, 
followed by quite a few landing craft. In all, about 36 craft tried to make it this time around, but only half of them actually attempted to reach the shore. As for those that did turn around, the men on the beach, at first waving them on, probably switched to a new hand gesture. Those boats were their only way home. As for those that came on, not all of them made it, as Captain McGregor of the Essex would write, a Stuka bomber would dive on them and a great spray of water would go up. When it went down, there would be no landing craft. Another LCA was close to shore when a German shell landed next to it and flipped the boat over. In fact, very few made it to this beach and away, roughly three boats. And this is predictable enough. All three were swamped with at least 70 men each. One boat only stayed afloat by putting its engines into reverse and giving it all the power the crew could. One private found that just because he was on a boat, that didn't mean he was safe. Through all the hell of that morning, this young man had not been touched. But now that he was on the boat and heading away, a shell landed close enough to put shrapnel in him, yet he would make it home. At another beach, eight landing craft came to pick up the Essex Scottish, but six of the vessels were quickly taken out. A few craft, before they left, stayed away from the beach, but threw ropes to the men, and some charged after this lifeline, but others, they stayed away, because if they were wounded, there would be no one to help them, and they would drown. The Riley's commanding officer, Colonel Bob Labatt, was one who managed to get aboard and some of his men were with him. Still, the boat was overflowing with the desperate. Labatt would write that he was surprised that only ten or so boats came to his beach. And yet, just as he and his were aboard, the wind picked up and all the smoke that was covering the ships was gone. As Labatt witnessed, every German weapon turned upon them and all hell let loose. What they had experienced before was nothing to this furious hurricane of fire. In no time, the sea was littered with the wreckage of shattered LCAs and dotted with heads and waving arms. A shell burst inside the crowded boat next to us with ghastly results. But Labatt's hell was far from over. Soon his boat was taking fire and he hoped that they all would make it away. That is, until he saw the sailors manning his craft jump overboard. Before he could yell at them, call them any names, he found himself standing in water. His boat had literally lowered itself to the bottom. Labatt and those around him were now in water up to their waist. The colonel, trying to square this latest circle, yelled for his men to inflate their May Wests and swim towards other craft further out. Many of the men did this, but some did not. There was nothing he could do about it now. The commanding officer turned and started swimming away as he saw other landing craft about a half mile away. As he swam, trying to stay calm to conserve his strength, he stayed away from groups of men who had panicked and had come together for moral support. Instead, they got the Germans' attention. All around him, the water was now foam as it was stirred by machine guns, mortars, and artillery. Getting closer to the LCA, Labatt watched as the boat took a hit and started slowly going down by the stern. He kept swimming. What other choice did he have? But the closer he got, 
the less he saw of the boat as it continued going down. Soon only the bow was sticking out of the water. There was nothing for it but to swim on. But looking around, he could see no other boats, well, ones that were not further out. The 39-year-old commanding officer of the Rileys was cold and tired, and now felt hopeless. With no other choice but to drown, the colonel turned and started swimming back to shore. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. By 1220, the last of the LCAs could be seen in the distance, heading away from shore. The hundreds of men who watched them go could only guess if they would make another try. Actually, some LCAs did try again. Around this time, word had finally gotten to Hughes Hallett, the overall naval commander, that the Royal Canadians had actually landed at Blue Beach. This was his first of hearing it. So he ordered Lieutenant Commander Goulding to try to rescue them. But as he got close, there was nothing to see except chaos. Goulding turned his ship around. But he was able to tell Hughes Hallett of LCP-159, led by Michael Bateson. His report read, What a sight! Overturned craft, half-submerged craft, floating craft with apparently no living thing aboard, and at the foot of a cliff, a fairly large number of Canadians, with Jerry at the top of the cliff, quite visible. Batesman continues, He told his superior that he had gotten so close, it seemed that the Germans were right there, so he pulled out his revolver and started firing at them, while his crew, more wisely, used the Lewis gun. But, Bateson continues, the stuff coming back at us was nobody's business, everything but the kitchen stove. Jerry was not going to let us get in, and the Canadians waved a white flag to us, and they were shooing us away. Batesman and company were pleased to get the hell out. McClintock added on that it was not possible to evacuate from blue, white, or red beaches, so he told the craft around him to form up and follow him back to the destroyers. This was followed by more garbled radio messages. Which is when Major General Ham Roberts, in charge of the land forces, said, We should try again. But Hughes Hallett, not having much faith in any success, decided to move in closer and see things for himself. This was at 12.50 p.m. As the Calp came closer to the western end of Red Beach, again on the eastern side of Dieppe, he had his guns open up on the breakwaters. As he had been told, enemy machine guns there were stopping the men from getting into the water. But when the Calp was about a quarter mile from land, the Germans focused what they had on it. Hughes Hallett scanned the beach with binoculars and saw no sign of troops or landing craft. Well, no landing craft that were still operational. The naval officer had his ship head for smoke, and looking around once more, he felt convinced that any further attempt to take off troops would be unlikely to succeed. Not that he wanted to give up. 
Instead, he started looking around for the gunboat Locust, which had a shallow draft and could get in closer. The man in charge of her, Robert Ryder, should be able to get in and have a better idea if rescue was still feasible. Ryder, now on the radio to Hughes Hallett, reported that Bill Southam's 6th Brigade headquarters was still on shore, but it might be best to let their radio chatter describe the story. 105. Give us quick support. Enemy closing in on beach. Hurry it up, please. 107. We are evacuating. 108. There seems to be a mass surrender of our troops to the Germans on the beach. Our people here have surrendered. And that was it. There was no sense in risking more lives to possibly help those on land. Most of the remaining men were either dead, wounded, captured, or had surrendered. Indeed, the Allies knew it was time to give up and head home. But the Germans were not quite finished. The remaining vessels of Hughes Hallett fleet were ordered away and to form up on the Kalp about four miles distant. The ships met up, feeling relatively safe, and most had put out smoke. But just then, three Dornier aircraft flew over the smoke and randomly dropped bombs. As the Allies' luck had been bad all that morning, why should this moment be any different? At 1.18, two bombs struck the Berkeley on her starboard side, just in front of the bridge. The ship was doomed. It was just a matter of going through the motions. The abandoned ship order was given, and soon a gunboat and the HMS Brighton pulled alongside to take on the crew. But now it was the Messerschmitt's turn. Again, knowing that hundreds of ships were within the smoke below, the German aircraft simply strafed and strafed again. And as some of the shots were from cannon rather than machine gun, when the Kalps Bridge was hit, several crewmen were injured, and Air Commodore Cole severely so. But Hughes Hallett had lost enough men today. When an RAF pilot was spotted in the water, the Kalp turned to save him even though that meant leaving the protective umbrella provided by the RAF. The further the ships pulled away, the less they were harassed. Not that some lone German fighter wouldn't try for a shot of glory, but at this distance, there were many more Allied planes than Axis. The Germans were forced away. As the ships sailed away, some took the time to look at the ever-receding beaches. There were still fires raging, bodies bobbing up and down, and overturned craft of all kinds. But most were focused on the wounded, as there were many aboard the many ships. The decks were covered in blood, a telltale sign of Operation Jubilee. Garonwi Rees, an intelligence officer for Montgomery, noticed that the men who returned looked much older than when they had left that morning. They were beaten, defeated, and scared. What they saw that morning would stay with them for the rest of their lives, even if they could not put into words what they saw. Reese would write, They had the gray, lifeless faces of men whose vitality had been drained out of them. Each of them could have modeled a death mask. What little energy the men had left, they used to curse at their leaders, those who had made the decision to send them, but were not there themselves. Back to Reese, 
He heard oaths and blasphemies, the cursings and revilings with which men speak of leaders by whom they feel that they have been betrayed and deceived. I thought that this is what a beaten army looks like. And leave it to the blustery naval crew, men who could curse you out with a big smile on their face. They began to sit down with the men who were either uninjured or bandaged up. Then they whispered calming words to these men though it's doubtful that the words got through to the soldiers, but the rum-laced tea helped. And one of those on the ships was U.S. Ranger 19-year-old Marcel Swank. He had his own rum-laced tea, and at time he would write, You're not really interested in success or failure of something, he reflected later. I was just happy to be alive. A very human response. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house in getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. But the men around Swank did start to ask themselves if they had done their job. In the military and in war, the only thing that matters is the man next to you, your mates. They also asked themselves if they, the individual, had done their best. But each time, whether it was a mate or a sailor the soldier had never seen before, the answer was always, yes, you did your best. Then there's the other side of the spectrum, the unvarnished truth. Jack Poulton of the Royal Canadians would write, We took our licks, and he wrote this long afterwards. We didn't ask for any quarter. We didn't beg. We didn't crab. We didn't bellyache. We knew we'd been licked, and we knew the Germans had licked us, and we were going to take it like men, like soldiers. Still, the operation was a failure, though it was not the fault of the soldiers. Indeed, many had moved beyond fear of death in order to save their comrades, though in most cases, that was not the end result. But that split-second decision came from different things for each man. Some felt helpless, so ran away from cover saying, oh, what the hell, or they panicked and made a bad decision. But the majority of those that made that decision that day to remove themselves from safety, that, that simply came from love of brother. Many of the deaths after the Allied troops were on the beach happened when trying to save a comrade. But there was another form of bravery. For those that made it back to the beach and knew it was lost, some stripped down and dove back into the water, determined to swim the mile or two they needed to get to a ship and not one of the nearby LCAs. Those 
would be Swiss cheese in a matter of moments. Instead of fighting the enemy, these men would test themselves against nature and their own physical limitations. But no individual point of view could change the numbers. Of these 6,000 soldiers who had made it to one beach or another, just over half were coming back home. On the coast or in the water were 980 men dead. The LCAs did manage to pick up 975 men, 601 off Green Beach, 368 off Red Beach, but only six men from Blue Beach. Still, those on the beach, soon to be heading to a POW camp, they, they numbered 2,010. Getting back to Colonel Bob Labatt, he did reach shore just before the ceasefire order was given. He soon ran into Commander Bill Southam of the 6th Brigade, and together they gathered what men they could and what weapons they could to engage the snipers. They were still firing on the men on the beach. Shivering from the water, Labatt helped himself to a dead man's boots, socks, and overalls. Soon his party was carrying casualties to a destroyed LCT. When he heard shouting, Labatt looked up to see one of his men carrying a white flag. But before Labatt could say anything to the man, a shot rang out and the man and flag fell. Labatt had to be honest with himself and say that he did not know where the shot came from, as the Germans were still shooting, but as the man had no authority to raise the flag, one of his comrades, out of fear or anger, might have panicked. Either way, the man was now dead. Many of the tank crews had decided to stay and fight, and knew that it was only a matter of time before their ammunition ran out. They felt they owed it to their brothers. But even they could tell that the fighting was nearing an end as German fighters flew over them and didn't even bother to shoot or bomb. Why? Those pilots knew the tanks were out of ammunition. Labatt wanted to surrender to end this needless dying, but he felt he either had to ask permission or be given an order to do so. But, and this will come as no surprise, he could not reach anyone on his radio. Just then he noticed a second white flag being raised. This came from a medical station behind an LCT. The medical officer had not ordered this. It was simply a young man who did not want to die. This gave Labatt more to think about, and at 3 p.m. he came to his decision. Using a captured down German pilot and a white towel, the German was told to walk out and wave the cloth. The Germans then came forward. They searched the men and took away their weapons, and then they led them through a hole in the barbed wire. For many, this was as far as the Allied troops had gotten. Many of the Germans were gloating, but some were somber, as they looked over the beach. Horrid is horrid, no matter the nationality. Not that they had a chance to turn things around, but there was still one group not captured, that being Colonel Cato and his 20 men. They were still in the wood behind the east headland. Now, they were surrounded on all sides, so Cato knew that nothing good would come of resisting. But having a different view of things, some of the men snuck away with their escape kits. And these kits included things like hidden maps 
a pencil with a dagger inside, and a shaving razor blade. But there's a twist, as many of these items were developed by MI9. The pencil had a metal spike dagger inside. The shaving razor blade had a compass. Its blade was magnetized, so it would point true north whenever put in water. But at 4.20 p.m., Kato formally surrendered. The man Kato surrendered to Hauptmann Schnossenberg and his division, they would soon be fighting in Germany. The scene before him now, as ghastly as it was, would pale in comparison. The ships from Jubilee returned home. As many men were missing, there should have been plenty of room aboard. But as most of the men were lying down injured, it was actually worse than the original voyage. The ships with the most wounded were ordered by Hughes Hallett to make directly for Portsmouth. Soon, the medical facilities there and elsewhere along the southern coast were stretched beyond their capacity. That evening, Lord Mountbatten spoke with some of the men that had fought that day, like Peter Young of Number 3 Commando. Soon he had Mountbatten, Colonel Robert, Enrique, and General Hayden asking him questions while he tried to down a sandwich and drink some coffee. But clearly, things had gone badly, which presented another problem for the top brass. Reports had been going out all day about the raid, and it was being presented as a success. What to do now? For surely the truth could not be allowed to get out. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. First of all, please check out Swing Time for Hitler. You will absolutely love it. I think if you listen to it, it's just under three hours, but it's got it's, it's got the text, it's got the history, and then they actually play some of the music, and he breaks it down. So it was a very enjoyable listen. I think you'll like it a lot. Um, this week, uh, I don't have any new members. Um, I don't think I have any donations, uh, but I did get a no. I did get one donation from a Douglas Tom. His father was in a RAF bomber command unit, and he wants to know when or if I'm going to be getting to um, the Allied pilots, the Americans, the, the the British, and other nationalities bombing Germany. And of course, we lost. We the Allies lost tens of thousands of pilots and aircraft crew during that time. Yes, I will get to that. First, we're about to go to the Eastern Front, but when I get back, the Americans will be involved in North Africa and obviously shipping people over to the UK to get ready with the bombing raids. And as always, take care, everyone.